Good morning. This series in Ephesians we called Earth and Glory, and I can't think of uh, a passage of, I mean, Earth and Glory is just throughout the letter of Paul to the church at Ephesus that we call Ephesians, but I think it is at this point in chapter 5 that we, we see this very profoundly, and that's why, even though we went through the 14 verses of chapter 5 last Sunday, I wanted to return and kind of highlight the glory of adoption. And it's an earthen glory because when we look at one another, uh, if we are in Christ, we are his children, but it's that earthen thing that we see and not the glory thing, and yet that's what God wants to highlight here in chapter 5. So I'd like to read just the first two verses and I want to expose us uh, to the New Testament conception of adoption which occurs in Paul and in the Gospel of John and letters of John. Verse, five, uh, verse 1, chapter 5, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, and a sacrifice to God. And if I may, I'd like to add verse, part of verse 8. You are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I don't think I've ever told you this uh, about me, but for seven years, I was an only child. Seven years. Until one day, Lynn, my sister, was born. And as we grew, me being seven years older, I teased her. Now, I don't know if this goes on in every home. I have a hunch that it does. The elder sibling teaching, teasing and teaching the younger sibling. When mom and dad were away, um, this is when most of the teasing, which I might add was, and I confess this, ruthless, took place. And one day it occurred to me to very solemnly tell Lynn that she was adopted. I did this as if it were a solemn secret and very soberly that the parents didn't want her to know because they didn't want her to feel inferior, second to me, not as close as I am. But I had to let her know. My views have changed now. I want you to know that. It was, it was pretty mean of me. But I want you to know my sister and I get along wonderfully. In fact, she was just with us here in Visalia for a few days. Um, we get along very, very well. But I, I, I kind of wish 
that I hadn't done that to her. I've apologized to her a number of times because my views have been changed by the gospel, by the New Testament, by the teaching of Paul in Romans and Romans 8, Galatians 4, um, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, and again, 1 John um, 3, verse, chapter 3, verse 1. So some wonderful things have changed, and I wanted you to understand there is that sometimes view that adoption is that of someone who is inferior to the rest of the family. They want you to fit in as much as possible, but you'll never quite fit in. Um, We want to treat you like an equal, but you really aren't an equal, that kind of thing. That's not the New Testament view. That's not the way God views you. You are his child. I can't think of as a better example than this of uh, Timothy Paul Jones who tells about his adopted daughter, and I want to share uh, what he has written in his book, Proof, which uh, came out just a year ago. He writes that, I never dreamed that taking a child to Disney World could be so difficult, or that such a trip could teach him so much about God's outrageous grace. Here's his story in his own words. He says, Our middle daughter had been previously adopted by another family. I am sure this couple had the best of intentions, but they never quite integrated the adopted child into their family of biological children. After a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption. And we ended up welcoming an eight-year-old girl into our home. For one reason or another, whatever our daughter's previous family, whenever they vacationed, they vacationed at Disney World, and they took their biological children with them, but they left their adopted daughter with a family friend. Unusually, at least in the child's mind, This happened because she did something wrong that precluded her presence on the trip. And so by the time we adopted our daughter, she had many pictures of Disney World, and she had heard about the rides and the characters and the parades. But when it came to passing through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, she had always been the one left on the outside. Once I found out about this history, I made plans to take her to Disney World. I thought I'd mastered the Disney World drill. I knew from previous experience that the prospect of seeing cast members in oversized mouse and duck costumes somehow turns children into squirming bundles of emotional euphoria. What I didn't expect was that the prospect of visiting the dream, this dream world would produce a stream of downright devilish behavior in our newest daughter. In the month leading up to our trip to the Magic Kingdom, she stole food when a simple request would have gained her a snack. She lied when it would have been easier to tell the truth. 
She whispered insults that were carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible. And as the days on the calendar moved closer to the trip, her mutinies multiplied. A couple of days before our family headed to Florida, I pulled our daughter into my lap to talk through her latest escapade. I know what you're going to do, she stated flatly. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? The thought hadn't actually crossed my mind, but her downward spiral suddenly started to make some sense. She knew she couldn't earn her way into the Magic Kingdom. She tried and failed that test several times. So she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. In retrospect, I'm embarrassed to admit that in that moment I was tempted to turn her fear to my own advantage. The easiest response would have been, if you don't start behaving better, you're right, we, we won't take you. But by God's grace, I didn't. Instead, I asked her, is this trip something we're going to do as a family? She nodded, brown eyes wide and tear-rimmed. Are you part of this family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and what's wrong, but you're part of our family, and we're not leaving you behind. I'd like to say that her behaviors grew better after that moment. They didn't. Her choices pretty much spiraled out of control at every hotel and rest stop all of the way to Lake Buena Vista. Still, we headed to Disney World on the day we had promised, and it was a typical Disney day. In our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times, but her, her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her, and asked, so how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes and snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. After a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It was because I'm yours. That's the message of our adoption. It's a message of outrageous grace. It's not because I was good. It's because I'm yours. Something that is ours because of Jesus Christ and the way God has sought us, pursued us, reached out to us in a variety of ways and pursues us until he makes us ours, makes us his. It's why we imitate such marvelous love and grace. It's not because I was good. It's because I'm yours. And that really is the message that leads up to Ephesians 
1 and 2. We are to imitate God because you and I, we are his children. You are the child of the beloved. Tim Keller said, in religion you obey God because God is useful. In Christianity, you obey God because God is beautiful. Was Timothy Jones beautiful to his adopted daughter? I think so. God is beautiful to us. If we fathom who he is, what he has done, how much he loves us, and that it's not your performance, your appearance, your pedigree, your accomplishments. He loves you. And I want to show us some of that this morning as we consider adoption. Because our adoption, your adoption, and my adoption, op, the adoption opens the very letter of Paul to the Ephesians. It's really the backstory of chapter 5, and I'd like us to look at it for a moment once again, because it begins in earnest with verse 3. And if you listen to these first verses from 3 to 14, with adoption, even just our contemporary notions of adoption, if you listen to it as an adopted child, as an heir, as a child who's been brought out of a past that no longer plagues you in any way, you've been given a new name, a new life, a new future, a new hope. This is what he's saying. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, which is to say, this is demonstrated in the fact that he has chosen us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, predestining us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now that's the thrust. That's, that's the big, let me roll out, you know, the big number, the big parade, the big extravaganza. That's it in a nutshell right in the beginning. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, nothing left out. Through Jesus Christ, something we bless him for because he has adopted us in love. Very profound. And then what does he go on to say? to the praise of his glorious grace, an act of his will, an act of his choice, his grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved, that is Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. You 
are a feature of the plan of God. When you see the scope of his purpose and plan, something set in motion before the foundation of the world, all in Jesus Christ, you are featured, you are a featured example of his plan because you are his child. I don't think it gets any bigger than that. The problem is our minds are too puny. Our hearts are too small. And they're occupied with so many things of this earth. Things before we came in here and things to follow. And it is hard for it to find place in our hearts, but it really should. God wants it to. Because he wants you to know who you are in his eyes and in his plan and in his purpose. Notice what he goes on to say, in him we have obtained an inheritance. You don't talk to, a, to somebody who's not a child of inheritance. When inheritance is mentioned, a child, a fully legal child is in view. And so when he says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So this is not circumstantial. This is not a mistake. This isn't some chance thing. This is all according to what God has designed and purposed in Christ and wants for you. Why? That we might be the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the forgotten God. The Holy Spirit is the principal expression, the very breath and intimacy of God which becomes a constituent part of who you are in Christ, the mark that he is your father and you are his child, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so look quickly, and this is not thorough, but it gives us just a glimpse, building on what I just shared with us again. Look at, he moves on to other points, all leading up to chapter 5. The second thing I have listed here, we are made alive in Christ in chapter 2. We're brought near to the family of God in chapter 2. We're made heirs with the Jews of the blessing of God in Christ, the blessing of Abraham, chapter 3. We're made equal members of the body of Christ, chapter 4. No wonder he says, therefore, in chapter 5, in the opening words, therefore, imitate. Be an example of your pedigree, your heritage in, in Christ that God is your father, that you are his child. Does the world get that from your life? Boy, that was the haunting question to me this week. 
Do people around me pick up that I am a child of God? Do they understand, if not fully, but do they get some sense of the horizon, the vision of the plan of God because of my life? That is why I want us to appreciate, and I just wanted to share six things about your adoption that were taught from the New Testament. We could have probably broken it down into maybe four or five or seven or eight, but I want to just pull together six things that should, I hope, energize and encourage you about your adoption in Christ. The very first uh, following the fact that you are the Father's beloved child is adoption brings honor. Adoption is always a step up. <laughs> We're elevated to a higher status, and that is contingent upon whom the adopter is. Who is the adopter? Well, that's clear. It's the God of the universe. And he set this in motion before even the earth was created. It was something in his heart, you might say, or as I like to call it, the secret, secret counsel of his mind. And it was set in motion then. And that's something that you are to him, the fulfillment of that plan, that desire, that love. That is a high calling. That is a great honor. When we get to verse 1 of chapter 5, there are no qualifiers. You're a full-fledged child. You are beloved. A term which last Sunday I mentioned is often used of the special affection and attention parents have when they only have a, an only child and how they can sometimes be a little overbearing and protective. You are very special. But here, more than anything, I would like to mention that in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Paul says something I find phenomenal. He says, you are an equal heir, a co-heir with Christ. That's pretty. And what is the word Christ? Messiah. In other words, he who fulfills all of the aspirations and prophecy of the Old Testament is the fulfillment of God's plan hatched in Abraham. He who is the Messiah, which is the heir of the prophet, the priest, and the king, he who is going to be Lord of all, he has acquired this inheritance, which was that promise to Abraham. He's the true heir. And now you and I, in Christ, were co-heirs. He's going to share his majestic inheritance with us. Try to wrap your brain around that. It's an act of grace. It's not because we were good. It's because we are His. 
Dio Chrysostom was an orator around the time of Paul in one of his discourses, Discourse 41, if you're interested, he is... He has been asked, he's a great orator, he's, he's known throughout the empire, and he's been asked by a sister city, and they are kind of jealous. Cities competed with one another for graces and favors and, and things like that. And so here he is, he's addressing the city, and he is grateful for the invitation and the fact that they are bestowing these favors upon him. And he uses adoption as a metaphor, as an, a way of conveying his gratitude. And I'm just going to quote you a line that he uses. He says, nature operates without choice. He's speaking about natural birth. He says, nature operates without choice. Now, of course, we don't look at it that way from a biblical standpoint, but this is a non-biblical standpoint. He says, nature operates without our choice. Grace, and he uses the very word that is used of grace in the New Testament. Grace is an act of free will. And therefore, he goes on to say, an adopted child, which is what he is saying, I am to you. I am your adopted child. An adopted child's love and gratitude is greater than that of a native son or daughter. Grace is expressed, great grace in adoption. Epictetus, another contemporary of Paul, he writes in one of his discourses, you probably didn't know this, it takes a little to to really realize the emperors of the Roman Empire, starting with Augustus himself, the succession of the title of emperor was handed off most often through adoption, not through handing it off to a biological son, a native son. Augustus was adopted, Tiberius, the emperor that ruled while Jesus was in his public ministry, he was adopted. Caligula, or Gaius, he was adopted. In other words, they, they weren't the sons of husband and wife. They were sometimes kind of relatives on the fringe, but they were adopted, they were chosen. Without his background, listen to what Epictetus says. He says, if Caesar adopts you, no one will be able to endure your conceit. He's drawing upon the metaphor of adoption and the way it was operating in the very time Paul is writing these letters. All of the New Testament writings were written under the emperors of Rome, and adoption was a way in which power, well, status, and succession were extended. But it also shows why some adoptions can be a great honor. And it should be in that light that we understand our adoption as the greatest. 1 John 3, 1 does really say it well. How great is the love the fathers lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. I know my sister 
went and asked mom if she was adopted. Wouldn't you? The question is, do you believe it? Would you believe what mom or dad would tell you? You want to have your heart settled. You want to believe. I'm asking you, do you believe it when God communicates it to you through his word? Do you apprehend by faith? And do you live thereby in the honor that is yours, the high calling, the great and bright future, the inheritance and more that is yours in Christ? Not only is it a great honor, but great intimacy with the Father. In Greco-Roman adoption, as I mentioned, most of the Roman emperors passed their title not to natural sons, but adopted sons. In fact, to just give you a peek at adoption in the Roman Empire, and this would vary from province to province, but it was certainly the case in Rome itself. Mary Beard, in her uh, recent history of Rome, SPQR, which stands for the Senate and the people of the Republic. Adoption in Rome, and I'm quoting now from chapter, uh, page 418, adoption in Rome had never been principally a means for a childless couple to create a family. If anyone just wanted a baby, they could easily find one in a rubbish heap. It's shocking and it's sad. She goes on to say, adoption among the elite had always been a means to ensure the transmission of status, property, and the family name in the absence of surviving sons. And usually they would adopt distinguished adolescents or young adults rather than babies because of the mortality rate and the gamble it was, because life was not as predictable then as it is even now. I remembered in the last service that in the fifth grade, I don't know why it stands out to me, but our teacher, Mrs. Rowe, taught us about the uh, expectancy of life at that time, and it was uh, 70 for a man and a few percentage points, and uh, 71 and a half for a woman. Well, today it's like in the 80s. I mean, the 80s are the new 50s. But the amazing thing is that in the Lord, our longevity is eternal in Christ. And the beautiful thing is you wouldn't be passed over because of your mortality rate or perhaps your lack of pedigree, or education, or money, or any other reason, because unlike Roman adoption, it's not your potential that we're aware of, but it's that God loves you, that he's adopted you. Do you realize in Japan, to, to this very day especially, it's been taking place in the last decade? And from an article just uh, three years ago, a few years ago, that in Japan, the great industries and companies of, of, of Japan that internationally are known by family names, those families are sustained and those companies are run by adoption. 
not by native children. That's really the principle in which uh, the emperors of Rome were chosen. And you can Google it and find out all about that. I read uh, from 2011, 80, 81,000 adults and an were adopted that year in Japan. 81,000 adults were adopted. And in, in, in a lot of the industry, they adopt not just any adult, not just a willing adult, but a largely super qualified adult. And then that adult gladly gives up its name for the honor of the new name and privilege of being the heir of that company and steering it into the future. That just seems to me uh, a picture of adoption that is of greater concern to the interests of the adopter. And here's the point I want to emphasize. That's not what the Bible is saying. That's not what the gospel is saying. The gospel is saying, no, God, the adopter, is interested in your welfare, not his. He's adopting you for your sake, your advantage, your benefit. He's interested in that you should thrive, that you should become more than you could ever dream or imagine, that your future should be brighter than you should ever, ever have a chance to hope in Christ. That's love, and that's an intimacy of interest and concern that is not a part of the picture of adoption in the first century or even in our millennium. Adoption endows us with the Holy Spirit of God. In Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, we read, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery. Do you know what a spirit of slavery is? It's a spirit of fear and trembling and apprehension because the slave would be fearful of a harsh master. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not the spirit you've been given. You've been the, given the spirit of God, the very breath of God, the breath that is prompting you, encouraging you, leading you. The spirit does three things. One, he leads. That's what we're told in chapter 8 of Romans. He leads. The second thing, he confirms, he verifies. In fact, he speaks, Abba, Father. He expresses the intimacy that is ours with God. And third, and this is picked up in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, he is in the constant process of helping us even to intervene in the intimate areas of our expressing ourselves to God through prayer those inner groanings that maybe never find wording, but it's the cry of our heart. How precious is that? Could you imagine, you know, and I was reminded, I read David Neff mentioned in a little article on uh, adoption that I had looked up, that uh, his dad, he was an only child, and his dad and mom had brought in foster children. They were going to adopt him. They talked to, to him about that and how his dad wanted the kids, these foster children, to call him dad, 
not Dr. Neff. That's intimacy. I mean, could you imagine me saying to my, my children, I got my doctorate now, so from now on, please don't call me dad. Just call me Dr. Venema. <laughs> well, sometimes, I know that's silly. It's kooky, but sometimes it brings into perspective an intimacy that we have that we don't fully appreciate, that others don't have, outsiders don't have. It really is because of God's heart. I remember reading a Reader's Digest article about a, a new mom had written in there. I'll just uh, summarize it. It was her first child, and she talked to her mom. She says, Mom, you know, I was talking to, to Bill, my husband, about it, and we were kind of surprised that our, our firstborn has dark hair when we're so light. And the mother said, well, your dad has dark hair. And she said, Mom, that doesn't count. I'm adopted. And the mother said, oh, I'm so sorry. I keep forgetting. And she said, those were the sweetest words I have ever heard. See, God doesn't even see us as adopted. It's not because you're good. It's because you're His. You belong to Him. Well, very quickly, three, adoption trains us in Christ-likeness. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, the writer of Hebrews says, Have you not given heart or attention to the fact that you are exhorted as sons? Now, I know that we don't see this difference, but back then, sons were heirs, not daughters. Although in Rome, when Paul writes you can pick this up. In Rome, daughters and sons could be heirs. But he's often writing to the provinces and not to Rome itself. So you see a difference in his letter to the Romans. But, I, but Hebrews says, this was your exhortation. And it goes like this. My son, do not regard lightly the training of the Lord, nor be weary when corrected by him. And that really reminds us that God is involved in our lives, in our development. He wants us to be a chip off the old block. He wants us to conform to the image of his Son. As he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that we are, he predestined us to conform us to the image of his son. That really is his purpose and plan for us. So every challenge, every hardship, I mean, didn't you want to be, I as a dad wanted to be very involved in the lives of my daughter and son more than they wanted me involved, but I like to tinker. And God is involved in your lives and you need to see the world and your life through that lens because of his intimacy, his great love, the honor that he has placed upon you in adoption and what he wants to do through your life. Another thing is where our adoption means that we're members of one family. This is huge. When I was a kid and we bought our first, my parents bought our first house for $9,000 on Chelsea Avenue and in Modesto, two houses down, I met a young guy my, na uh, my age, his name was David Phipps. Don't Google that, I don't know which you'd find I haven't seen David since then, but David Phipps, his dad, I learned, was a pastor, and he invited me to go to the Southern Baptist Church in Modesto there, and so I did. And the strangest thing to my ears was when you, you know, when you were at the church, people would come up, 
Brother Phipps, Sister Williams. They all called each other brother and sister. I thought it was really kooky. I don't think it's so kooky anymore. And I'm not advocating... You, you, look, if you want to call me bro, I'm good with that. But <laughs> we need to think of each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. That the people in this room share that honor that we share. They are a part of that co-inheritance. That intimacy... You know, if there's a difficulty, there's intimacy with God between you that we need to tap into. And we need to treat each other as family, not as commodities. We shop around in this city like, like we're on a shopping spree. This is not a shopping spree. We are God's people. If we, could, if we could take some of this to heart, that's what we're supposed to do when we feed on the Word. We're to digest it, and it's to add to the strength of our lives that we might live and conduct ourselves in a way that show we are a part of God's great master plan. Or else we might as well just pack this thing in and go home and spend the rest of our time doing stuff that fits our fancy. We also secure an inheritance. That's all over the scriptures. But I just want to share very quickly, Russell Moore, some of you know Russell Moore. He adopted two boys. And um, this is from his book, Adopted for Life. When he was driving, when they loaded them in the car and they were driving away from the orphanage, he says that they were crying out you know, turning around, yearning to go back to their rooms in the orphanage. And he says, in the same way, we hesitate when God calls us to the inheritance that we share with Christ. We fall back on what we know, even though what lies ahead of us is something better and more beautiful than we could ever imagine, if only we trust the one in whose arms and, and in whose footsteps we live. And finally, the last point is that I think adoption in the New Testament is about not only the Father honoring us, but us honoring the Father. You see, we are to imitate Him. And uh, feeble as it is, uh, God has provided that we should be able to get up and get going again and walk in His love and walk as children of the light. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us. I want to remind you, I'll be down here, pastoral staff, elders, spouses. If something in what God has opened our hearts to this morning has spoken to you in a way that you would like to pray with us about that, we invite you to come. If God has tugged on your heart and you want to devote yourself to Him, if you want to become a child of God through Jesus Christ by becoming His disciple, we invite you to come. We'd love to pray with you and start that walk with you in Christ. If you want to pray for someone else, we invite you to come.
But don't just walk away if God has spoken to you this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you. May this day be a little different. May we look at it differently. May we respond to it differently. And not just today. May your Spirit bring these things to our minds, make them a part of us for tomorrow and for the week and the month and for the rest of our lives that uh, we might enjoy our status and the very, very special place you have for us in your family, in your life, because of Jesus. We pray this in his name. And all of God's people said, God bless you.